You're listening to Kitchen Table Finance. Join Dave Shotwell and Nick Nauta as they cut through the complexity of financial planning and serve bites of investment advice that are both personal and practical. Hey, Dave, how are you doing today? Not bad at all, Nick. Not bad at all. Beautiful day. Starting off uh, the summer season right, and we've got a special podcast today. This is a, a kind of a first of a kind for us, so I'm pretty excited We're about it. Steal a page from a couple of our mentors and do something called Ask Me Anything. Yeah, so we were able to get some questions from listeners to um, basically a, a list of questions that we're just going to go through and uh, answer one at a time. So I guess without further ado, Dave, I will let's. Uh, I'm, I'm going to start with you. I'll read the first question. So the question is, what is the bare minimum I should be putting into savings from each paycheck? So this is something we've, we've talked about in some other podcasts and uh, in some of our blog posts. But, uh, you know, it's, it's tough because it is so circumstantial, so specific to the individual. And so, you know, I think it, as we've said many times here, it all starts with your budget and your priorities, right? And yep. so... The bare minimum, you know, we tell people to shoot for, you know, at least 10% of their income into savings, right? It's like a ballpark rule of thumb. Hey, if you can get there, at least you're, you're on track. For some people, that's going to be plenty. For some people, that's not enough. So, you know, and the other thing is when we talk, when the question is really, what's the bare minimum? And I would say it's anything you can afford to save with the idea that you want to get to that 10% at some point, just to, just to, you know, get started with, if, if you can save 10 bucks a week, do it. But the first thing is to figure out your budget, figure out your priorities and get yourself to cash flow positive where you actually have that surplus to save, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think you're spot on with that. A couple things that I would add is, you know, we throw out the 10% number as kind of like where you want to be. But what I would say to that is don't beat yourself up if you're only able to do five. It's really a lot of it comes down to where you are in life and where you are financially, where you might be putting a bunch of money towards student loans. And so you don't have as much to throw into savings, but eventually that equation turns. And what was 5% 5% might be 20% because you paid off a big student loan or a big, you know, debts, things like that. So um, it's definitely situational. And, and sometimes we're too hard on ourselves where we think, oh, God, I'm not saving 10%. So I'm never going to get ahead. I'm never going to, you know, be successful. And, you know, a lot of times that's true kind of in the short run, but maybe not in the long term. It's one of those don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good kind of situations. Do the best you can and uh, improve it over time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I guess the the flip side of that would be if you are in a good position financially, but you're spending a bunch of money on stuff that you don't necessarily need just because it's fun to, if you're thinking about buying a new Tesla or something like that, and maybe, you know, maybe you want to make sure your savings at 10% before you go take on new debt that kind of pushes you out of that range, so to speak. And also, you know, think about how your life's going to change if you're young and single right now and um, making a good income. And you know that you're planning to get married, hopefully buy a house and have kids, you know, maybe, maybe doing as much as you can right now makes more sense because you know, in a couple of years, that's going to shift. So just 
keep all those variables in mind. It's different for everybody. Do what you can. So question number two, what is the best way to improve your credit score? This is definitely not either of our expertise uh, but, you know, just kind of a basic overview of credit score. The credit score is kind of made up of these five different categories, right? So you've got payment history, which tends to be the most important, making sure that you're making on-time payments. Credit usage, uh, which is also up there with payment history in terms of how much credit are you using compared to what you have, right? So if you have $10,000 of credit, are you using all 10,000 or are you using 1,000? The lower that percentage is, the better off you are in terms of what your credit score is. And then there is the age of your credit accounts. So the longer you have established credit, the better off you are. There is your credit mix, which is do you have every the only credit that you have is credit cards or do you have a mortgage, a car payment? Um, it's actually better off if you have a wide variety of different types of credit when it comes to credit score. And then the last one is new credit inquiries. The question was the best way to improve credit score. So I, I think kind of there's two parts to this, right? The best way to improve credit is to continually make payments on time. That's probably not the fastest because making payments on time means taking time to make payments, right? So if you are, you know, if, if you have payment history issues, it's going to take a while for those old late payments to drop off and the good new ones to come on. One of the fastest ways to improve credit scores is the credit usage. So the, you know, one way to do that is if you have a credit card with a high, you know, amount on it, you could pay it off. Obviously, that's probably not the easiest thing to do because you wouldn't have a bunch of money on a credit card if you had the money to pay it off. So another way around that that we see is contacting your credit card companies, the revolving debt, and asking them for a credit limit increase because that will technically change your credit usage, right? Even if you don't pay anything off, if you had $10,000 and now you have $20,000 of credit, and you're still using, you know, you only use 9,000. So the goal is to increase your credit limit and not use that extra limit that you increased. So that's a good way to, that can move things a little bit quicker. Obviously, the age of your credit accounts, you know, that's why, you know, I, I hesitate to say this, Dave, but that's why establishing credit when you're 18 and getting a credit card is a good thing. It's also a very dangerous thing. It's kind of like playing with live ammunition to some degree. Like, it's, it's a little bit of juggling fire. You know, when you said uh, Colin asked to have your credit limit increase, I kind of cringed a little bit. But, um, you know, I think all of the, I, I'm going to give kind of just a quick practical thought about all of this, you know, Nick, those are a bunch of technical ways to improve your literal credit score. And those are good. But just in general, be smart about how you use your credit, have credit, but be smart about how you use it. And just kind of keep in mind, if your credit score isn't good, you shouldn't be taking on more. Like, what's what's the point of what's the point of getting an improved credit score? It's to borrow more, right? But if your credit score right. isn't good, then you've all, then you're maybe not in a position to be borrowing more anyway, right? So 
hey, here we go back to the basics, right? Look at your budget, look at yeah. your priorities, you know, be responsible with your finances in general and your credit score will improve. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I think a lot of times people get too wrapped up in what's your credit score, but you're absolutely right. If you're not planning on taking on new debt, it doesn't really matter what your credit score is. <laughs> I mean, it might affect your auto insurance. I, I don't know. That's a good question for an auto person. I don't know if they're allowed to do that anymore or not, but I know they used to have their auto insurance score. That was basically your credit. I think they're still allowed to use it, but, uh, but I'm, not a, I'm not sure. That's been controversial. Because there's a correlation between good credit scores and responsible driving. And, you know, we can, we can, we can, that'd be an interesting uh, topic to discuss more in detail, but uh, probably not for today. All right. So there's your uh, ways to improve your credit score. Question. Next question is, do you think the market will crash soon? Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Here we are, you know, as of, uh, as of uh, yesterday, the markets in general are down, you know, 10 to 13% for the year, depending on which market you want to look at. So, um, you know, when I talk to people, some people think the market already has crashed. And, you know, there's some definitional differences there, and we could spend a lot of time on that. There's no technical definition of a market crash. A, a market correction is anytime the market drops more than 10% from its recent highs. We are definitely in that right now. Those happen on average about once a year in, in round terms. A bear market is when the market drops more than 20% from its high. And on certain indices, we're actually in a bear market right now because the NASDAQ at one point a few weeks ago was down more than 20% from uh, mid-December. So, you know, bear markets tend to happen a lot more regularly than people realize about once every eight uh, get my statistics mixed up. I think it's um, about every 18 months or so. No, that's too often. But to go back and look at that, um, they last about 18 months in general, but they happen pretty regularly. And, you know, we did a, we did a podcast a couple of weeks ago on inter-year volatility. And people forget that in most years, the market, the average pullback from the market high during an average year is about 13.5%. And that's looking back to 1982. Uh, these are numbers we just talked about it. It was uh, we, the average market return has been about nine percent annualized since then, but in any given year, dropped about thirteen and a half percent on average from its peak. So, will we have a crash eventually? You know, as my grandpa used to say, even a stop clock is right twice a day, right? So when you listen to the news and they talk about ending gloom and doom, eventually they will be right. But we also know that much more often the market rises and the economy grows. Keep those things in mind. And the other thing, if there's going to be a market crash, it's going to that they, nobody's going to know it ahead of time. Absolutely. And, and for further proof of that, just go out and read what some of the prognosticators are putting out there right now. Some of them are going, yeah, hey, it's going to get real bad. And the other ones are going, hey, we're probably already, we already hit the bottom and now we're on the way back up and nobody will even know. Uh, we'll just kind of slowly creep back up. So that's kind of what we're hearing out there. And the reality is nobody knows. So I guess the the better question would be, are you prepared for it when it does happen? Because it will happen. It could be tomorrow. It could be another five years. How many times in the last uh, six weeks have we told clients, 
you know, we didn't build your portfolio thinking that things like this were never going to happen. You know, this part of the equation, this part of investing. And uh, we've got a lot of, lot of other pieces out there on this topic. And uh, rather than uh, rehash them all here, let's just say, I'm not going to try to predict when the next market crash will happen. I will say it will, there will be a market crash at some point, depending on how you want to define it. There will be bear markets and there will always be corrections. It's the price we pay for that higher return you get for taking short-term risk. Absolutely. And I think a great one for people to go back to is the uh, Stock Market Charts podcast that we did a couple weeks ago. So we'll make sure to put a link of that in the show notes if you haven't heard that one already. Um, The next question, Dave, is an IRA or 401k a better program for a new person just starting off in their career? Yeah. So again... The answer depends on a 401k plan. So, so at, at the root, a 401k plan is dependent on your employer. An IRA is not dependent on your employer. That's that's a retirement account you can set up on your own. So if you're just starting out, the basic things to look at are, first of all, does your employer match in their 401k? IRAs aren't going to have a match. But if your employer is adding anything to your 401k, Regardless of how much you want to put in, um, and you should put in enough to get whatever match they're offering if you can afford it, you know, that's usually going to be the best option if there's any kind of employer funding to the account at all. If there isn't, then it really comes down to how much you want to save and what the plan options are in a 401k. So, The advantages of an IRA are that you can invest in just about anything you want on your own. But the downside is that it has lower investment or yearly contribution limits. So if you want more, your 401k may provide you better answers, but the 401k is going to have a limited menu of investment options that your employer creates. I mean, the the best program for a new person starting off is to find a job with a 401k that, you know, gives you 10, 15%, (laughs) no matter what you do, right? Um, Unfortunately, there's very few, if any of those left out there. So I I guess the the only other thing that I would add to that, Dave, is the one benefit of a 401k over an IRA is you get the tax benefit right now as opposed to having to wait until the end of the year, right? So if you're putting money in a 401k, you're not, they're not withholding the taxes on that. Um, so you're kind of getting that tax benefit now as opposed to the IRA where you have to put in at the end of the year. I mean, technically you could probably change your withholding around a little bit um, to make those equal. Um, but it, you know, and the other thing too is pay... Uh, it's easier to save out of payroll than it is once money hits your account, right? If it's gone before you have a chance to mess around with it, sometimes that's a lot easier for people. Um, so those are some minor things. Yeah, if you are going to go the IRA route, I would advise you try to make a monthly contribution. You know, even if yeah. it's not for the full amount of the IRA limit, you can always top it off at the end of the year. But, you know, try to get in the habit of doing something you know, around payday where that money goes into that, especially if you're new to saving and investing. That also lets you take advantage of dollar cost averaging. And, uh, you know, when the markets are down, you're, you're better off uh, buying then. So 
rather than try to guess the direction of the market, put a little bit in every month automatically, don't think about it, and it'll play out well for you. And, and I think the bigger thing, IRA or 401k doesn't matter. The more important thing is that you're starting to save at a young age, right? <laughs> like at the end of the day, those two things are probably going to be similar in 30 years from now. The most important thing is that you're putting money into one of those. Right. Yeah. We talked about the uh, power of long-term compounding in the markets in the uh, review of uh, Morgan House's book two weeks ago. So next question, how do I decide when I should start taking social security? It kind of depends on personal circumstances, but the things that we look at to help people decide are health and longevity. And if you are going to delay social security, where is that difference that come from early in retirement? So, you know, you're eligible to start drawing Social Security at 62, and you can delay up until age 70, and every year your benefit's going to grow approximately 8%. So if you delay, we know you're going to get bigger payments, and we know you're going to get fewer payments over your lifetime. We just don't know how many fewer. So that's where health and longevity come in. If you're going to live, for most people... What do we say the break-even point usually is? 78, 79? It varies a little bit. Yeah, somewhere late 70s, early 80s. Yeah, so so just in terms of looking at Social Security, if you think you're going to live past that break-even age, and you can just you know say like mid-70s, if you think you're going to live past your mid-70s or late 70s, you're probably better off mathematically delaying as long as you can. But you're not going to know. We're not going to know until until we can't do anything about it. Right. So you got to make your, your best guess. The other part of it is if you're retiring in your mid 60s and you're going to delay Social Security, you're going to have to replace that income from somewhere. And so you have to have a 401k or an IRA or, or some source of income to replace that IRA or the Social Security income from. I mean, those are all great points and kind of how we think about it. You know, another side of that is just the psychology of it. If you tend to be more conservative and worried about the markets and taking money out of investments, maybe you start Social Security sooner. So you're not losing sleep over the fact that you don't have a steady income coming in. You know, I think that bears some some thinking through on a, on a personal level. The other thing that I would say that I hear a lot is people want to take Social Security at 62 because they're afraid that they're not. If they don't take it at 62, they won't get it. It'll just mysteriously disappear. I don't believe that's true. I mean, I think that, you know, at some point, Social Security may have some changes to it, but it's certainly not going away. And it's certainly still a valuable thing. And and I think that what's going to happen potentially is they might make some adjustments, but it's probably going to be based on what you're actually taking. Um, So if you take early Social Security, you might be getting less in the future. So that's just one that I I know that we hear quite a bit. And when it comes to Social Security, I got to take it as soon as possible because it might not be around very long. In a nutshell, there are some relatively simple fixes that could be made to Social Security when the politicians get around to doing it. They're not going to get around to doing it until it's a crisis. That's the way democracy works, or at least our democracy. So don't, you know, on the list of things that keep me up at night, 
Social security benefits for folks in your retirement is not one of them. Well, and we just got a, a spot of good news. It looks like the trust fund actually had a little bit more money than they thought. Yeah. So we got an extra year, 2035 now, as opposed to 2034, which they were projecting. So there you go. Part of me, and, you know, being kind of a student of politics and, and how it affects this stuff, I, I almost wish they'd come out and said, nope, we were wrong. It's going to be like 2028. 20, Let's get going. Let's just get it over. <laughs> right. Have the politicians play down. And what I expect will happen, and this has already been talked about this year uh, on Capitol Hill, I don't think there's, I don't, there may be proposed legislation to increase the um, cutoff limit. I think they might make it, I think the proposal is actually to make it unlimited, the income cap on Social Security taxes. So right now, if you make more than it's in the 130 range, I believe, 130 to 140, it increases every year with inflation. But you only pay Social Security tax until you hit that cutoff. And if they remove that cutoff, it would mean millions and well, I don't, I don't know the amount, but it would go a long, long way towards fixing whatever's wrong with Social Security. Yeah, there's definitely ways to fix it. But like you said, it's just a matter of when that gets done. And it's probably not going to be until it has to get done. So... Next question is how late is too late to start planning? This is a this is a good question. I like this one. That my tongue-in-cheek response, of course, is when you're on your deathbed. But <laughs> the, real, the real answer, I think, is from a practical standpoint, is it's too it's too late to do financial planning when you no longer have control of your own situation. When it's too late to change meaningfully where you're headed and where I'm going with that. Like, like if you're, if, if you're approaching retirement age and suddenly can't control like, Hey, I'd like to work longer. No, I, you know, I want to be retired when you've lost control of that key variable. You can't, it's not like all of a sudden you can say, Oh gosh, I'm going to have to retire. I'm 58. I'm going to have to retire at 62 and I haven't saved anything, what am I going to do, right? So so that, right. so that absolute thing is going to be different for everybody, of course, and on circumstances. But the way to think about it is the earlier you start, the more leverage you have, right? The more control you have. If you start back to the, you know, that earlier question, if you start throwing 50 bucks a month in a Roth when you're 22, you're going to have a lot more control you know, if you've got that habit going and you can keep increasing it, so you're putting 10% or more away over time, all of a sudden in your 50s, looming retirement isn't such a big deal, right? So the long way of saying it's never really too late as long as you still have variables you can control, but the earlier you start, the more leverage you're going to have over those variables, the more things you can you can do uh, like another example too. That's not necessarily saving, but you know, if you're 50 and you're worried that you're going to get aged out of your current role at 62, you can do things now to make sure that if you wanted to keep working until you're 70, you've got the skills or a certification, or you know, maybe you take some classes or do something. You know, you can do those things earlier, right? And those are all part of financial planning too, even though they're not, you know, investment relatedness or dollar and dollar investments into a IRA. 
by investments in yourself, you can do those things when you're younger and you have more time. Definitely, it's easier the younger you are, but also, you know, the older you get, the later in your career. I mean, I, I guess I look at it this way. At some point, you've done some planning, you've made some decisions. So... <laughs> Right. Whether or not that decision was to do nothing. I mean, you've done something. Chances are you have something. So it's never too late to kind of come in and look at what those options are going forward and, and think about the things that you've done in the past. So, um, you know, we, we have clients that range from really young to really old and we're still doing planning for all of them. So, all right. Next question. What income amount should you make before you start your plan? Yeah. So again, it depends on what you mean by financial planning and, you know, kind of, we, we just basically answered this in an oblique way. I don't think it's ever too early if what you're talking about if you're talking about like a true investment plan, that may come a little bit later. But if you're talking about what we think of as financial plan, you know, you can start that when you're in grade school, really. If it's if it's about like making sure you're learning learning how finance works and not spending more than your income and covering those basics, um, it's never too early. What they're probably getting at is is when with this question is when should I engage with a financial plan? And that's maybe a little bit different question, you know. And usually, when we're first talking to people, it's usually around that first job and figure, you know, coming out of college and figuring out, you know, student debt and you know what to do with the, those first benefits and things like that. Yeah, you know, I, I think at, uh, my personal answer to this would be at any income amount. Um, there's always planning. What I would be careful about is, you know. If you are at a lower income, you don't want to be paying more for the financial planning than would be going into what you're saving and investing and things like that, especially at a young age. So I would be careful around the idea of what you're paying for said planning. But I think that, you know, whether you go and find a hourly planner that you pay a set hourly weight to kind of help you get started. I think that's all really good and beneficial. You just don't want to pay more than you can afford for financial planning, so to speak. That's a good point. That's a good point. Gather around and follow the Kitchen Table Finance Podcast to learn about money and simple ways you can invest right now. You can find more practical advice at srbadvisors.com and contact the team for personal planning by emailing info at srbadvisors.com.